Hello, it's me, Ben, uh, from this podcast. What you're about to hear is an episode of The Theophiles, uh, which Theo and I recorded on December 30th of last year. Um, That's the little spin-off series where Theo and I talk to each other about little tidbits from history and the the, the sciences and all sorts of wonderful things. Um, If you would like to maybe get these when they come out, instead of waiting for however long it takes for us to put them on the free feed because we need a night off, uh, consider signing up to the Patreon. If you don't want to, and you're happy waiting, great. That's tremendous. Um, Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Bye. Come one, come all, and gather round, we'll tell our tales to thee. Of saints and whores and demon cores Of sights for all to see Come ye all around the fire And listen all the while To tales of holes and mystery We call the Theophiles We call the Theophiles Hello and welcome to Bunta Vista This is part 12 of the Theophiles I am Ben, and I am here at the Blue Room Cinnabar on Boxing Day of the year 2022, about 45 minutes into watching the science fiction adventure movie Avatar 2, The Way of Water, having ingested an hour earlier one weed cookie with the friends with whom I am seeing the movie. This batch of cookies, as yet untested by myself, uh, the person who made them, or anyone else, was made with weed oil, also of an unknown strength, outside of a report from the mother of the person who made the cookies uh, that it made her, quote, too high and she could no longer use it. The onset of the edible, having already taken me to the pleasantly familiar languorous stupor and confusion of a strong dose, continues. I find myself entirely unable to move. The giant box of popcorn and expensive novelty avatar-themed cocktail I purchased sit in front of me, untouched. My ability to determine what's happening in the movie has progressed from a simple inability to follow the plot to a more alarming inability to translate the 2D images moving in front of me (laughs) to the real-life 3D counterparts that they represent. More alarmingly, I find my ability to see it all is diminishing. The image on the screen is slowly growing darker. No one in my peripheral vision, for at this juncture I cannot turn my head, appears disturbed by this development. So I must conclude that it is happening only to me. As the image grows ever more dim, the colour palette in which I see the world becomes more limited. What little I can still see of the screen has lost its former dynamic range and appears to me to be somewhat posterised. Rapidly moving blobs of only three or four colours doing an incomprehensible dance in the near darkness. Soon, this too is taken from me. The room dims to nothing. Not the suggestive darkness of an unlit room, but a total absence of sight. Whether I have somehow become stuck in a position that is cutting blood flow to my brain or some other stranger explanation, I find I have become cut off entirely from my sensoria. No sight, no sound, no sense of sitting in a chair at the cinema, no sense of being connected to a body at all. Oh no, you pee-holed yourself. While a small, (laughs) rational part of my brain is attempting to remind me that people don't die from weed overdoses and that I am simply too high at the movies, the louder part of my brain is convinced that I am either on the verge of death or that I have already died. I cannot move. I cannot scream to make my plight known. Although if I am already doing these things, I have no idea. I think perhaps I am not, though, as the part of me that doesn't want to die is being overridden by the part of me that doesn't want to make a scene. I resign myself to my fate, reflecting on the awkwardness and absurdity of dying in my early 30s from eating too much weed oil at a screening of Avatar 2 The Way of Water. And then, a glimmer. Light. Sound. The feel of the armrests. I'm back. 
in some small capacity, gradually floating to enough awareness to ride out the rest of Avatar to the way of water while reckoning with the crushing pain of my own mortality. With me also is Maddie, who is sitting next to me having the exact same experience but doesn't normally smoke weed. It's Theo. Uh-huh. Hi, Theo. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit like that. Uh, are you? Um, yeah. We, um, so <laughs> there were four of us there. Uh, three of us had one cookie. One of us had two. Oh. And none of us looked at each other in like the, the three <laughs> hours of the movie. But I could just hear the people in the row sort of occasionally hyperventilating. <laughs> it was... That was a very bad experience. I've oh, never no. had that happen before. Genuinely, I was like, oh, I'm dead. I died. I fucking that is, died. That I is died at Avatar 2. Way too high to be. I have I've never been anything approaching that. Well, I've been I've been really high before. Like I've accidentally given myself, you know, far too many edibles or whatever. But I've always recognized the things that happened to me during that time. This yeah. like completely it was horrifying. I don't. I was trying to. I couldn't tell anyone about it. Yeah, because you were in the lizard brain. <laughs> yeah, but I was looking at Maddie and just being like, "I went blind," <laughs> without being able to articulate the unbelievable terror I experienced of um, just being being a consciousness floating in a void. Yeah, for could have been ten seconds. Could have been an hour. It How'd was, she um, go with this? She seemingly had a better time than I did, although oh. she can't remember the movie at all. <laughs> She's <laughs> got no memory from the the three hours that sort we were there. Uh, some some stuff happened. She didn't remember any of the parts that were in water in Avatar 2, The Way of Water, because that's about where the brownie kicked in. That <sighs> <sighs> was really upsetting. And then I... Once I sort of got a little bit better towards the end, I became punishingly aware of the fact that uh, soon the movie would end and then I would yeah. have to stand up and be around all these people. Yeah, and you'd have to start acting. And then you'd have m- to start doing providing something. agency. How do you stand? Driving, yeah. How do you walk? Is it okay to push some out of your way because you're really high? You need to yeah. leave the building immediately. <laughs> yes. And then the walk home was about 25 minutes. And Maddie and I walked in complete silence because I yeah. couldn't. Didn't... And you would have walked normally as well. Oh, sort my of God. Moving one leg in front of the other like a normal person would have. Just <laughs> every sort of bending s- your joints. Every single footfall. your valves. Was so conscious. Just such a conscious <laughs> effort to just do one step. I felt like a toddler, except that toddler had to walk two and a half kilometers. Yeah. It was. Yeah. No bueno. How are you? How was your Boxing Day? I'm good. We um we've not been up to much. We've just been sort of at uh between home and the in-laws' place with with our two little munchkins. But uh, they're going good. They're having a good time. Lots of presents. Christmas is different with children. Yeah. Um, I thought you were doing that whole um you and your anti-consumerism. N- not oh my, a, we got a minimal so, amount of gifts. We got so many gifts. Oh, so no. many little pieces of plastic trash to oh, yeah. throw directly into landfill. Despite your desperate pleas to your in-laws and your family to not yeah. do that. Uh, that's that's uh, fallen on not not just deaf ears, but like noise-canceling ears. So they yeah. repulse any kind of concept like that. Um, 
but no, we're having a good time. We're um, probably just uh, going to have a little quiet one for the rest of the new year. And I'm back back at work on the third, which is nice. Well, maybe uh, we could um, we, we could do something on Tuesday, maybe if you don't have any plans. But we can oh, we can take yeah, this yeah, one yeah, offline. We can take offline. We don't need to plan our, our week, although I'm sure people get something out of it. Yeah. Because uh, we've got an episode to record. Hey Ben. Hey Theo. Hey, have you ever wondered what it's like to walk a mile in the opposite sex's shoes? Um, yes, but I've watched some very interesting documentary videos on the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whereas I, I haven't. Um, let's talk about airships. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I I love dirigibles, um, but not in a... <laughs> Not in a sincere way, because okay. they are fucking stupid as but, hell. Well, they're very slow. I think that's the thing very, about a dirigible. <laughs> we'll get into that. Um, <laughs> and they sort of seem like more fiction than real, although they absolutely existed. Because like, I think our, our interaction with them is more through fictional means than non-fiction, right? Yeah, like, we, you, we see Sky Captain in the world of tomorrow yeah. and the dirigibles docking at the top of the Empire State Building. And you go, well, there's no way that they docked dirigibles at the top at of the, the top Empire, of State, Empire building. State Building. That's right. Yeah. Well, they would have had to build a mast up there and yeah. specifically for that. Yeah. Um, as sort of a sliding doors moment where these could have been, if <laughs> nothing more than just like cruise ships like yeah. the covid bearers see that does well it sounded nice until you said the covid bearers but i would love to go on a slow zeppelin to china yeah imagine to china gin fizzes <laughs> on your way to the orient <laughs> while you're traveling at a steady three knots over the atlantic ocean <laughs> wait no i've that's, i've taken really the slow the yeah. slowest possible route yeah to China. You're on a slow airboat to China. Should we take the A to B route? No, I was no. thinking we take B to Z. Yeah. <laughs> so um I'll I'll give us a selected history of, of airships. Um so I think it like really got kicked off in earnest by a a, a Frenchman by the name of Henry Giffard. Uh, who was the first person to make an engine-powered flight when he flew 27 kilometres in a steam-powered airship. Steam-powered airship. What a combo. Um, uh-huh. So this was the most Simpsons-ass thing ever to fly. Uh, so it was a 44-metre-long balloon, which was shaped much like we imagine a Zeppelin today, right? That's half a football pitch. It's not a small thing. Man, that's um, huge. And it had a little chair platform hanging from it, like a bunch of wires hanging from a beam, hanging from the balloon, which on which the pilot and the steam engine sat, uh, which had to be carefully managed so that the fire in it did not set fire to the balloon, mm. which was, of course, filled with hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is a completely inert gas. No, that's helium. Ah. Uh, I can see the problem there, Hydrogen's the then. one that sets fire all the time. <laughs> uh, the whole 27-kilometre journey took three hours. Uh, and he wanted to do a return journey, but he couldn't fly against the headwind, so which was like five knots. Well, you could have waited. Yeah. <laughs> um, so skipping forwards to exactly 1900s, we saw uh, to exactly 1900, the year uh, we see the big dog of dirigibles emerge, the Zeppelin, uh, largely funded and imagined by Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Uh, we mm. don't. You know, I, we just don't name them like that anymore. I think it was a nom de Zeppelin. I think he invented the Zeppelin, saw how popular it was. Yeah. And then thought, you know what? I'm changing my name. Uh-huh. 
Uh, <laughs> Everyone knows me as the Zeppelin guy anyway. Previously, so. it was Frederick von Aircraft. Yeah. And he was like, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't have that be pizzazz. Rich guy, the Zeppelin. <laughs> um, so they built the airship LZ-1, which sucked ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then followed by LZ-2 and LZ-3, which what are is, a bit better. What does the L stand for? Lead, I think. Mm. Lead Zeppelin. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, so LZ-2 and LZ-3 were a bit better, but they just sort of like totted around Germany extremely slowly, carrying dignitaries who going like, ooh, <laughs> etc. <laughs> so forth, so on. Mm. Um, they followed this with LZ-4, or Untitled, uh, in 1908. God damn it, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> and if uh, you're under 30, <laughs> go fuck yourself. Yeah. Don't even talk to me till your bones hurt. Um, so they built LZ-4 in 1908, which was built to satisfy a funding requirement uh, for a 24-hour flight from the Reichstag. Um, so... Which it did, well, it attempted, but it was just a series of fuck-ups. Um, so shortly after it began, one of the engines ran out of fuel, and so they had to stop the engine. And I assume they knew that this was going to happen because there was only so much fuel in each tank per engine, yeah. and they just had to like run fuel around from engine to engine. I don't know. Um, but it had to be stopped. But currently, it was daytime, which meant that the airship was flying lighter because the sun on the yep. skin would inflate the balloon making it big and round uh and <laughs> okay, so it down. was so it was relying on the engines being pointed downwards so when the they stopped the oh. engine it shot up to 820 meters uh and then they've got all of these like pressure valves which would just like whenever it went like too high yeah um so it lost a bunch of gas, and that happened three more times until it lost so much gas uh, that it was relying on the engines now to point upwards and keep it afloat. Um, so eventually it was tethered to make repairs to the forward engine, which had suffered from a melted crank. And I've got question marks there in the document. Uh, but during the afternoon, uh, it was it was torn from its moorings by a strong wind, uh, oh, which a will be a repeat... <laughs> Appearance in this episode. Uh, Have you ever heard that uh, that the Mitch Hedberg joke about uh, escalators? Yeah, that, that they can never be broken; they can they only temporarily be stairs. become stairs. Yeah. Sorry for the convenience. Sort of the opposite of a uh-huh. yeah. Um So, a bunch of soldiers tried to hold it down, which is again very funny. Uh, mm. Man a- versus Zeppelin. Who will win? <laughs> Um, but they failed, and I assumed they all went, whoop, and kind of got, like, dragged along the ground for a little bit, comically. Uh, but there was one guy on uh, left aboard who brought it back to Earth. I assume maybe the janitor? I don't yeah. know. This is his time to shine. <laughs> Absolutely. And he did. Oh, he fuck. brought it back. That's incredible. Um, and I'm going to quote from uh, Wikipedia here. Uh, Unfortunately, the ship came into contact with a half-dead pear tree while landing <laughs> the, the Zeppelin's <laughs> natural enemy. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just a funny It's just a why funny would, craft It's a funny aircraft Why would you specify aircraft. that detail? <laughs> uh, dead. So it came into contact with a half-dead pear tree While landing which damaged some of the gas bags And it immediately caught fire uh, The cause of ignition was later ascribed To static charge being produced When rubberized cotton of the gas bags were torn So effectively If you haunt a Zeppelin too hard It catches fire 
right? Like <laughs> you got to got to keep track of all the electrons, where yeah. they are, where they should be. Um, <laughs> here's the funny part, though: the oh. disaster took place in front of an estimated forty to fifty thousand spectators and produced an extraordinary wave of nationalistic support for Zeppelin's work. We what? love the shitty craft. Why? <laughs> More, more, more. This is insane. Do you think it was just out of sympathy? They're like, oh shit, he's going yeah. to have his feelings really hurt. Yeah. Unsolicited oh. donations from the public poured in. Enough had been received within 24 hours to rebuild the airship, and the eventual total was over 6 million marks. Um, at last, providing Zeppelin with a sound financial base for his experiments. So we need more Zeppelins catching fire what? so he can build more Zeppelins. I just feel like the public sentiment doesn't run that way anymore. Like, if no. you people love seeing hubris fail yeah. so much. The only way to get like a big public outpouring of money is to be like a grandpa that someone took a photo of saying, No one turned up to Gang Gang's yeah. hamburger party. And then everyone sends him $150,000 and GoFundMe for unclear reasons. I don't know. I mean, we rebuilt one of the towers. Yeah. Bit half assed to only do one, though. Yeah. Put your back into it. I think so. Hmm. Um, in Western Europe, meanwhile, Britain, France, and Spain are starting to dip their horrible little European toes in the dirigible waters uh, when a little thing named World War One breaks out. Bit of a mistake calling it World War One. Yeah, you're just setting yourself up for a franchise there. I yeah. would have called it The War to End All Wars. Yeah. Or The Great War. Get some people in the door. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with the world. <laughs> they should have called Couldn't it get hey, enough people in. The war that sucks real bad. And suddenly you won't have so many people yeah. choosing to go fight. In. Don't show up yeah. to this war. <laughs> you uh, will hate it unless you love Trenchfoot. <laughs> some sort of Trenchfoot freak. Um, during this, uh, <laughs> some German. <laughs> Uh, um, <clears throat> during this, some Germans believed that the Zeppelin would be this incredible attack aircraft, which is pretty awesome. funny because I don't know what they expected because oh all it could God. do is float around, like soaking up small arms fire and pushing yeah. bombs out the window. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's no way that a bullet could ignite a Zeppelin. So. Well, so apparently they were just largely immune. Um, the bullets would just go foot, foot through huh. and... Um, it wouldn't like... There's no sort of no, metal... No, it's not a half-dead pear tree. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, so it's really like using the uh, the machine guns on the on those biplanes versus King Kong. It's yes. not doing anything. Yeah, it is. And much like King Kong, um, the pressure on the inside is greater than the pressure on the outside. <laughs> so it kind of just forms a, a barrier against... Uh, so, like, the bullet would go in and out, but yeah. the there was no real exchange of... Like air and gas. But the pressure on the... Oh, outside, sorry. Inside? No, I see what no. you mean. Of course, yeah. Other no. way around. The pressure on the outside is greater outside. than the pressure on the inside because it's a outside. less dense Yeah, gas. I didn't actually get a quote on that. So um, whatever the one is that makes us right. Wait, so <laughs> just a, so it's either lighter than air gas, which is crucial to the fact that it's buoyant. Yeah. But... Does the frame of the balloon have to be rigid? Oh, okay. So, um, 
I didn't actually put this in, but there's three classifications for um, for God, aircraft. you look so excited right now. <laughs> I don't need notes for this. I'm I'm ready. Uh, rigid, which are the zeppelins, which which rely on a um, on a frame of aluminium. Um, going all the way around. See, what if the bullet hit the aluminium frame? Yeah, I and guess. Caused a spark. I guess, but shoot for the frame. What's the chances That's its of that happening? Point. It's flashing yellow. <laughs> shoot for the guy in the zip. <laughs> no. <laughs> no one ever says that in war, the greatest weak point of the zeppelin is the guy with a massive handlebar moustache pulling on a series of arcade levers <laughs> and pulleys. Well, whistling a jolly yeah. tune to himself underneath. <laughs> well, if you take him out, it's going to crash. <laughs> in 10 days. In 10 days, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's semi-rigid ones, which are... Um, oh, sorry. So the rigid ones, you can put whatever the fuck you want inside the balloon, right? Yeah. Um, there's semi-rigid ones, which I believe the inside is actually the the gaseous part. And it's just got like... Uh, reinforcing stuff going around it, but it doesn't need that there necessarily. Um, and then there's non-rigid, which are the blimps we have today, where yeah. they are basically a balloon. Yeah. Um, full of helium. Um, but they did find some use in anti-submarine warfare, which we'll also come back to. Um, I'm not going to say when we're going to come back to this, but it's a. I'll hint that it's another war that happens a little bit after this one. Uh, Warcraft 2, where yeah. you could use the gnome dirigibles to spot the goblin submarines oh, or whatever. You could. Mm. Maybe maybe uh, there is a little kernel of truth <laughs> to <too. laughs> And also, if you click on a peasant in real real life, he does say, work, work. Yeah, he says, zug, zug. Yeah, something, yeah. something need doing. Yeah. Um, so the Zeppelin company are forced under the Treaty of Versailles to um, build America a replacement for early Zepp- earlier Zeppelins that they built that was supposed to be war reparations for the USA, but they were sabotaged by the crew. Uh, it doesn't say why the crew sabotaged it. I don't know. Maybe there was some sort of lingering resentment in Germany following World War One. <laughs> Didn't follow that up. Um, <laughs> but I love the idea that Germany fucked up so bad that they had to build a sorry Zeppelin. Yeah. <laughs> And we will make it properly this time. I'm just kidding. I'm going to make it very badly. <laughs> to send them a gay zeppelin. <laughs> Be sure to take it as fast as it can go, as high as it can go on the first day. <laughs> so that's how you break it in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this was the USS Los Angeles, which was used to um, to do a bunch of testing, including... That's the name of the zeppelin? It has yeah. like a ship designation? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess they got to call it whatever the fuck they want. It's, that it's their rules. It's their zeppelin. I'm the captain of the USS Los Angeles. Oh, it's yeah. like an aircraft carrier or a destroyer. Yeah, a water? Yeah, it's never. Yeah, yeah. not sure. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, they used a bunch of experiment. Uh, it, yeah, did a bunch of experiments with it, um, including piloting the US's Parasite aircraft program, which fucking whips. Yeah, uh-huh. That face you're doing right now was the face I got when I clicked on uh, the next two names in Wikipedia. Uh, it resulted in the construction of the USS Akron and the USS Macon, um, the first of which was the first purpose-built flying aircraft carrier. Uh, and it could hold four F-9C Sparrowhawk pilot, uh, fighter planes. 
This is fucking. It's flying. It's Holy doing. Holy shit! Yeah, it's doing the fucking sky captain. The world sky of tomorrow captain. is They're real. Doing a sky captain. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. It it was incredible. Um. It, what what is it named after? Because the Akron is Akron, Ohio, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. It was named after Akron, Ohio. But what about Macon? Uh, Macon, Ohio. It doesn't sound like a real place. No, I don't know. Um. Anyway, uh, it was eventually zapped by lightning and exploded off the coast of New Jersey, killing 73 of the 76 crew and passengers. Uh, most drowned because there were no life jackets or life vessels. Uh, so they put those on the USS Macon, so it too could be exploded by a storm off of California. Oh! Uh, most of the crew were saved because of those measures. So, That's you know... Good. You gotta break some eggs before you realize you have to put little boats on so that the eggs don't. Before you have to realize you need the eggs need protecting. Yeah. Uh, it's Macon, Georgia, by the way. So if you've already mm. written into us, yeah. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Unless it was about something different. Oh, and then it's so lovely to hear from you. So lovely to hear from you. Um So following World War One, the world catches dirigible fever. <laughs> um Bed rest but- and uh, topical ointment. <laughs> Directly on the penis. Um, The Empire State Building, finished in 1930, featured a docking mast at its top. What the hell? No vehicle ever docked there. Oh, come on. Yeah, there was a photo op done with like a a, a, um, dirigible parked near it. But (laughs) they never docked. Yeah, but they never docked anything there. Did they ever dock anything at the Chrysler Building? No notes on whether they docked any dirigibles at the Chrysler building. Mm, okay. Well, if you have any leads, <laughs> yeah, please write it about that. Wow. So that photo where it looks like the Surely Zeppelin tr- is kissing yeah. the tip of Surely the Empire State Building. Kissing the tip. Yeah. Like your high school girlfriend. It's <laughs> getting started. <laughs> Not enough contact to actually done. do anything useful, though. So. Still pretty tantalizing. <laughs> yeah. Tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> she kissed the tip, bro. Yeah. Um, God, that's a cool photo, though. Yeah. Even if it is staged. Yeah. It's just things were so much cooler in the 30s before everybody starved to death. Yeah. It's also a shame about, you know, everything else. Yeah. Like that, everything else. This stage photo was paid for by crushing racial wealth inequality and <laughs> after the yeah. back of slavery and everything. But... But... Pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, possibly the most successful of all dirigibles, the dirigible that's like fulfilling the promise of dirigible fever, the fever dream, uh, was the LZ-127 Graf Zeppelin, which was built in 1928. Um, it was conceived by and piloted by... And it, I, it appears to be like exclusively... By Dr. Hugo Eckner, who's a super interesting guy all by himself, an anti-Nazi, um, mm. had a did a whole bunch of cool shit. But yeah, like, just seemed to be the the guy that did the Graf Zeppelin um, all of the time. So it made 590 flights, flew over a million miles, um, and this is really the vision of passenger airships. Uh, it was enormous. It was 236 metres long. What the fuck? Yeah. That's Huge. insane. Huge. 
right? Um, like, I think we've we've established previously on this very podcast that like the biggest container ships in the world are like four hundred meters long. Yeah, like this is, and this is an aircraft, right? Like if you stood it vertically next to you know the city skyscrapers or something, it's you know twice the twice the height. It's it's enormous, right? It's a it's a really big boy. Um. And it burned blau gas instead of petrol because blau gas was closer to the density of air. Sorry, um, can you blau gas? And that is German Bla- for blue gas. Uh, no, I think it was named after a guy. Johann <laughs> von Blau. Yeah, Hermann Blau. There you go. Um, this is German for Hermann to, Blue. Yeah, similar to propane. Um, yeah, right. So it's it's closer to air, so that means that they don't have to adjust the um, the um, oh the daytime nighttime the, f- the float so much. Well, no, it's not going to affect that. But like, so so the previous ones when they're burning petrol, it's going to change the the density of the craft, so it will require like constant adjustment of oh, gas and sure. outventing and all this sort of stuff. Whereas yeah. this made it mostly self sufficient because mm-hmm. you burn. Blau gas and it is replaced by air in there, and it doesn't change the the density, the lift of the planes of the aircraft so much. Yeah, it was an absolute sensation, right? So Graf Zeppelin was greeted by large crowds on most of its early voyages. Uh, there was a hundred thousand at Moscow and two, possibly two hundred and fifty thousand at Tokyo. Um, at Stockholm, spectators launched firework rockets around it. Okay, well don't. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, and on the return flight from Moscow, it was punctured by rifle shots near the Soviet Youth uh, Union. Going to have another crack at that. It was on the return flight from Moscow. It was punctured by rifle shots near the Soviet Union Lithuania border. Uh, on one visit to Rio de Janeiro, people released hundreds of small toy petrol burning hot air balloons near the flammable craft. Again, you're you're kind of just sending. Little little fuses at an enormous bomb containing people, um, but yeah, it could fly around the world um, at a speed of over a hundred kilometers an hour, um, which is you know faster than a ship. Yeah, I nowhere think. near as fast as a plane. Yeah, because they but, travel at like what nine hundred kilometers an hour. Yeah, but still, they're pretty cool. That's the speed of a Ford Falcon AU. Oh, half the speed of Ford Falcon <laughs> AU. I, also, for I, so I googled Graf Zeppelin because I wanted to see what this bad boy looked like. And the first result is for the German aircraft carrier yeah. called the Graf Zeppelin. And I, uh, in a wild flight of fancy, briefly entertained that this was the undercarriage of the Zeppelin and that yeah. this was the craziest fucking shit I've ever seen. Yeah, no, it's a it's boat. To, yeah, named after the Zeppelin. Or the guy that... Uh, yeah, named yeah. after the guy. Yeah. Or the Zeppelin. Yeah. But uh, it's still a cool... That's a big Zeppelin. Yeah. Um. Oh, right. Graf is the German title for Count. It's the, the yeah. Count Zeppelin. Count yeah. Zeppelin. Which is still funny. Um, so this thing could fly like at a reasonable speed, but it's still a joke to me. Uh, yes. Because joke things kept happening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it needed uh, every time it landed, it needed a bunch of people to hold it down, yeah, to the ground to kind of like drag it into a hangar or what have you. Sometimes that they, fuck, I didn't get this on the on on my notes, but I remember one time it um it stopped in Ze- in Brazil somewhere, 
Um, they spent like two hours there, you know, restocking and and passengers like stretching their legs and that sort of stuff. And the whole time they needed people to hold it on the ground for two hours. They're just like holding this piece of shit to the floor. So you can't fucking tie it to something. You've just not got zip bollards. Off. Find a bollard. Yeah, well, they tied it to stuff too, but that was not always <laughs> not a reliable measure. <laughs> um, so it stank the whole time because of the blau gas. Oh, of course. Um, that smelly blau gas. Smelly blau gas. It was, it was fitted out with a luxury Art Deco cabin for its 20 passengers, but it was at ambient temperature and pressure the whole time. So it was just freezing. It was just cold. Like it was just fucking, it was the, the temperature of sky air. So you're just freezing the whole fucking time. Wow. Yep. Yep. Um, had a stowaway on one flight who was discovered in the mail room. <laughs> uh, once transported Susie, an Eastern gorilla. Um, oh, it, come on. It nearly hit power lines taking off, nearly crashed into the ground during a hailstorm. Uh, it made a, made a visit to the Century of Progress World's Fair in Chicago in 1933. It had swastikas painted on the left side of the fins, so Ekna p- piloted it so as to present the other side. <laughs> That's like a... Look at this side! Look at this side! This side only! <laughs> Do not... <laughs> it's so horrible! The what other side holds so it's, nothing so it's symmetrical? of interest. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. is the Bilateral symmetry. German engineering. Holds away. <laughs> Once you've seen one side, you can simply imagine the reverse in your head. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful piece of shit. Um, but in 1937, the Hindenburg ruined it for everybody. That was oh, basically come on. it. You cowards. So the Germans had no helium supply. Um, the, the US had a stranglehold on helium, which I think was uh, largely produced as a um, byproduct of their nuclear weapon um program mm-hmm. uh later on so uh so the germans basically had to just shut it all down no one wanted to fly them anymore um so they still then had military use in world war 2 they got everyone got started again they picked it all up again <clears throat> started where they left off um they were again used as an anti-submarine craft uh, largely by the americans um who had 10 of them at this point and um, they were being pestered the whole time by German U-boats, you know, the world over. <clears throat> so this led to the most Civilization II-ass battle in the in history uh, when the dirigible K-74 was patrolling the coastline near Florida when it detected a submarine via radar, made an attack run at the submarine, did not manage to release its depth charges, and then was shot down by the submarine. <laughs> It just feels like the Zeppelin has the home field advantage. <laughs> Float up, yeah. dipshits. All of this is ours. They have, what, 70% of the world's surface. Sure, you have yeah. the entire sky. You have the rest of the universe. That's yeah. yours. Yeah, you've got the Z-axis. They can't take the sky from you. Yeah, well, they can Except if they, they did. shoot you with a big gun <laughs> on the top. And now you're their turf, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it crashed into the ocean, whereupon one crew member was eaten by a shark. Oh, God. Damn. Uh, they they did have success protecting convoys, though, right? So eventually, you know, due to the uh, ongoing, like, desperation of the Germans, German U-boats, they 
started their their program of actually you know destroying passenger ships and cargo ships etc and so they started putting them all in convoys and the convoys that had zeppelins were basically never touched I shouldn't say I shouldn't say zeppelins but the the dirigibles the the American dirigibles um, were basically never touched by by submarines right because they had depth charges they were they were all kind of you could spot s- with an incredible radius I assume that's yes they're like whoop hey there's don't a fucking know if there's submarine any boats over there. over there but there's a Something in the sky. I'm using World Warcraft 2 rules, and I've spotted a submarine because yeah. of my increased height. Yep. Um, now we just use blimps, which is stupid for looking at sports games, which is stupid. Uh, and there are two dozen of them. Yeah, there's not... Globally. There's, there's very few. Um, whereas in sometime at the peak of of this, and I didn't catch this, I didn't write this down, but I think it was about ten to 15,000... Um, pilots wow. of, of airships in America um, at the at the peak of dirigible fever. That's fucking amazing. There's probably like 10 blimp pilots. Yeah. And like half of those are remote, right? The Goodyear yeah. blimp is a fucking drone. There's not a guy in the Goodyear blimp. Yeah. Oh, hang on, let me... And they can't even get is rid of them if they're racist. In the Goodyear blimp. Doesn't say if there's a guy in there. I don't think there's a guy in the Goodyear blimp. Fly inside the Goodyear blimp. There's a guy inside the Goodyear blimp. <laughs> now, Theo. I think that's just to give it some um, some stakes if it crashes. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it's just well, who cares? It's a balloon. Who cares? Yeah. You don't want to kill. You don't want to kill Gary, <laughs> the, the Goodyear blimp guy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I remind you that Gary is up there, and if something yeah. happens to the blimp, he is a goner. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you met Gary. <laughs> You've all met Gary. Uh oh, the canvas has appeared to rupture. Say goodbye to Gary, everyone. <laughs> Gary's fucked. <laughs> I'm afraid it is a very bad year for Gary's family. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> he is certainly dead. <laughs> now, um, I'm sorry, I, I assume that, that concludes... That's, that's me. That concludes dirigible fever. Now, this is actually a very lovely coincidence. We've somehow... We keep doing this. We've done this again. A nice bit of synchronicity here. Now, you were talking about dirigibles, zeppelins and blimps and things of that nature. Um, on that note, if you had to guess... How many people do you think are cryonically frozen right now? Fuck. Globally. In Globally. the world. We've got one Walt Disney. Maybe. That's a myth. He's That's not frozen. Okay. He was cremated. He was cremated? He was cremated. Did they freeze his ashes? <laughs> he might have put his ashes in a freezer, but I don't think that counts as uh, cryonic okay. suspension. Fuck, there's got to be some nutters, right? Um, but it's so expensive. It's expensive. It is expensive. Just as a, a vague overview of what the process is like. So, obviously, you can't just take um, a, a regular human body, chuck it in deep freeze and say you're done. Because yeah. the much like putting... Uh, I actually don't have a comparison for this. But all the moisture in your body will expand and it ruptures cells. Yeah, it ruptures cells and then you're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. And like it will tear apart the delicate membranes in your brain or whatever. So, yeah. they have to... And that happens to me already, so... And imagine if they did it at negative 160 degrees Celsius. Can't they just make it zero? Negative 196. No, it's got to be really cold. Well, so my... So freezers run at, like, negative 20. And my chicken stays, like, rock hard in there. You should put that to them. Okay. 
Hey, but, um... have you tried running the freezers a bit hotter? <laughs> Cut down on operating costs. So the way they do it in modern times is they replace your your blood and your other fluids with a basically an antifreeze mixture. No, that's mine. Yeah, well. And then they, they chuck you upside down, I believe, uh, in oh a, a vertical tank that is filled no, with or cooled by liquid nitrogen. This is just Vincent D'Onofrio's mind palace in the cell. Yes. And they do look a lot like that. Oh, no. Minus that horse. <laughs> they don't have that horse in there. Yeah. But now back to the question. <laughs> they realised that, that the horse was not a vital part of the <laughs> process. We should get rid of the horse slices because they had just taken up valuable floor space for <laughs> no could, real purpose. We could be hanging bodies in here. <laughs> they could be another upside down rich guy. <laughs> take a take a punt, take a stab at a number of cryonically frozen people right now. I'm going to go with a hundred, with a round one hundred. That's that's a pretty reasonable guess. Yeah. So there isn't no one publishes an exact number on this, but I have no. got some numbers don't here. Want, so don't want people finding out. Um, there are two hundred and twenty nine bodies chronically frozen at the Cryonics Institute in Clinton, Michigan, alongside two hundred twenty eight pets. Uh, there's another thirty bodies that are also stored there, frozen, but being done by the American Cryonics Society, who rent space from them. Uh, there's another 201 frozen bodies at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation facility in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah. There are 87 frozen bodies and 50 frozen animals at the Cryorus Cryonics facility in Moscow. This includes a chinchilla that uh, had suffered lethal head trauma while playing and was put into... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, suspended animation. Uh, there are at least 12 people frozen at the Yinfeng Life Science Research Institute in Jinan, China. There are eight bodies and four pets frozen at the Oregon Cryonics Facility in Salem, Oregon. There are five people frozen at TransTime Inc. in San Leandro, California. Uh, there is a, a new facility that just got built uh, in... Switzerland by the European Biostasis Foundation, um, but it's not clear if they've actually put anyone in yet. The Southern Cryonics Facility in Holbrook, New South Wales, is meant to open sometime now-ish, uh, but so far they don't have anyone there. That's in um, Holbrook, New South Wales. It's got that submarine. Oh, you ever seen the submarine in Holbrook? No. Uh, they got a they got a submarine up there that you can explore and climb around on, oh. on land. On land. On land, yeah. Oh. Uh, so all yeah, in all, we're looking at about 550 people in total. So you're in the sort of right order of magnitude. Yeah. Which is... Mostly in America, I notice. They yeah. must really suffer, I think, from being uh, untethered from the mortal coil, which happens to us all. Well, I think it's also that they just don't like regulating things over there, and there are actually quite a lot of rules about what you can do with dead bodies in uh, most countries. Yeah, very, very easy to freeze someone over there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, at the Easy moment, freeze. they reckon there's about 2,000 people globally signed up to have it done to them when they die. Yeah. So you sign up with one of these companies as a, a customer or a patient, they call them. Uh, after your death, they call you a patient, which I find very, very funny mm -hmm. uh, because you're dead. Yeah. And uh, the you'd be very patient at that point. <laughs> infinitely. <laughs> the prices tend to range from around $50,000 to $200,000. Um, although... They do often have the option of you can just make 
the cryo facility a beneficiary of a life insurance policy in your name. Yeah. So, you know, they get all that money. Uh, now, that's a fun runway, isn't it? Right? Like, that they have to discover a way to unthaw you before that money runs out. And like, well, money, <laughs> the last dollars come out of our out of our bank account. Time to shut off the freezers and well, that's walk the thing, out the right? front door. They sort of have to guarantee that they can do it in perpetuity because, as all of them say in their legal disclaimers, there is no technology that exists to revive people. Yeah. From from cryonic Big, freezing, yeah, which is which is great if you're a fan of hanging upside down for an indeterminate amount of time, frozen, yeah, after you die. You know what's fucking crazy? Not so is good that at, yeah. This so this started in like the sixties and seventies, and we'll get into that. But f- we are fifty years removed from that now, which I bet is well beyond what these people thought would be the threshold for where the technology would get there. Yeah. Like surely. Um. So obviously, a lot of the cost is just that it's long-term care. They need to keep the power on and the liquid nitrogen topped up uh, yep. for as long as it takes, which is Got why they're asking every day. for you know six six-figure amounts of money. Uh, the longest continuously cryonically preserved body is that of a man named James Bedford. He died of kidney cancer at the age of seventy-three on January twelfth, nineteen sixty-seven. He has been. Frozen in various different tubes now for 56 years. What do you mean various different tubes? Well, he's been moved around. Okay. Uh, on, they freeze them in a tube? Hmm? Well, they they put them in these like sealed steel tubes that are essentially like vacuum flasks because oh. they, they have to be kept very, very cold. I was imagining that big, uh, that big freezer room from Half-Life. Yeah, that seems like it would be more efficient, but uh, it turns just out... just hang them in there like... Like uh, livestock. You're going to like where this goes, I think. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Bedford, our, our man who's been in the, the tube for 56 years, he was frozen by a team composed of uh, three people. Physician and biophysicist Dr. Dante Brunol. Uh-huh. Incredible. I mean, what else are you going to call yourself if you're doing this? Chemist Robert Prohoda. Mm-hmm. And television repairman Robert Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> gets gets very boring in there. <laughs> got to make sure they got something for people to do. Now we're mostly going to be talking about uh, television repairman Robert what? Robert Bob Nelson. No, Nelson, <laughs> uh, who had no scientific background whatsoever, went to the first meeting of what would become the Cryonic Society of California in 1966 after hearing an ad for it on the radio, and he was immediately elected president at the first meeting. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> Yeah, he's a very charismatic guy by all accounts. Clearly, uh, now it's it's worth noting that um, the story that you're about to hear he has told himself before on an episode of This American Life, but it is also quite evident that he's a pathological liar. So, uh-huh. it's, yeah, yeah, worth keeping worth keeping that in mind. Now, the first thing that the society did uh, when it formed was it put together a scientific advisory council who all agreed to participate as long as they, as long as the society promised that they wouldn't actually try to freeze anyone. <laughs> now, the second thing that the society did was freeze someone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like bringing together a bunch of people who really love to shoot guns. Yeah. Don't shoot those guns. Don't you shoot those guns? I'm only here. Of it. <laughs> 
We got to talk about the guns. We got to think about the guns. <laughs> we got to bring all of our guns. We got to collect bring all guns. Our guns. <laughs> Uh, in January of 1967, they got the call from Bedford's son, who said that his dad wished to be frozen. Um, so, despite the fact that they weren't prepared to do this at all, they didn't have all the chemicals at hand, they didn't have a proper facility set up, they went ahead with it because Bob Nelson figured that even if they lost the scientific advisors, uh, they'd still be making a huge leap forward in cryonics, being the first people to do it properly. Yeah. I mean, hard to know what's properly as well. Yeah, well, yes, because that's the science isn't really there now, at yeah. this point. Only one other person has been frozen, but she didn't have yeah the perfusion done where they re- replace your your you know your body liquids with antifreeze and stuff. So she was never going to be viable, even if she was you know revived. Yeah. So that was more of a test as to what would happen. So she was that body was frozen. She was then unthawed, and they just sort of check to see what happened to her, her body. This was the first time that someone was being done with the intention that they would be frozen and revived yeah. at some point. So they point. froze her, they unthawed her, and quick check to see if she's still dead. Yep, still dead. Still dead. Uh, yeah. Better luck next time. Better luck with James Bedford. Yeah. Um, they did this uh, at his son's house. They were borrowing I'm ice sorry? from people on the street, like neighbours, to keep the body cold while now they were preparing said- it. Big scientific lift, uh, step forward, I guess, to be yes. the first ones to do it right. They're basically stepping so step onto the moon. Step one, door knock. Body. Step two, door knock for, for ice. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, after they finished the perfusion, the body was then stored in a garage inside a wooden crate filled with dry ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was eventually turned over to back to Bedford's family, so his son, and his son managed to keep him stored in a liquid nitrogen-cooled tank until the 90s when he was handed uh, to another professional cryonics facility. Then he was handed back to the... Well, handed to the Alcor facility in Phoenix, Arizona. So he's been all the places that a dead body in a frozen tube can go. Yeah. But uh, this this thing, this, you know, famous first freezing, of the longest freeze man, is not the thing that made Robert Nelson famous. Uh, <laughs> so the thing you have to know about the Chronic Society of California, as you can maybe guess from the fact that it had a TV repairman as its president, was that this wasn't like a group of scientists and technicians who wanted to do cryonics, who were interested yeah. in like figuring out the science of it. It was a group of people who wanted to have cryonics done to them. So these were all people that wanted to be frozen on their death and the reason they were thinking about this is because quite a lot of them were close to death so they were either quite sick or they were very old unlike nelson who was quite young uh and so it only took six months after getting the call to freeze bedford that one of their members died Uh, a woman called marie sweet uh, having no proper storage facilities and no real money to speak of, uh, they did the same thing with Marie, where they froze her and then they kept her in a wooden box lined with polyurethane uh, that in turn was kept in a garage attached to a mortuary. The box and this was, is, they did the perfusion thing. They did the to, perfusion thing, yes. To her as well. Yeah, so, so they, they did it properly insofar as they were doing things properly and then they kept her in a wooden box. Do you have any more details about, like... Because I'm just picturing like an oil change here, where they kind of get the tra- them over the tray, yeah. So and they drain them. 
they don't say how they get the fluid in there, but they did say that they have to apply a lot of like rapid chest compressions to get the liquid circulating Ooh. through the body. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I assume they're just whacking her with a rubber mallet at various key arteries around the body just to really get that antifreeze going everywhere. Um, so Nelson's job at that point became to top up uh, the the dry ice every week and that was that was keeping her in a state of suspended animation wooden box polyurethane mm-hmm. garage uh-huh. literally a garage for cars yep uh, and then shortly afterwards uh chronic society of california member helen klein dies uh she was also put in a wooden box lined with polyurethane that was kept in a garage attached to a mortuary yeah she at was this point they're stacking up well sort of because it was the same wooden box <laughs> So he couldn't afford to buy dry ice enough to keep two boxes cold. So yeah. he was like, well, fuck it. I'll just put both of them in the same the same box. That means I only have to get the same amount of dry ice. That mean, makes sense. Bingo bongo. You yeah. know, less, less air to keep cool. The system works. Uh, at this point, the mortician is starting to get sick of having the bodies in a box in his garage uh, because he's pretty sure it's illegal <laughs> and he doesn't really like what's happening there. <laughs> And so he is slowly working on getting Bob Nelson to get rid of them. Uh, Although it hasn't happened yet. But at this point, a man named Russ Stanley, who was also a member of the the Cryonic Society of California, dies. Uh, And of course, he can't afford another box or more ice. So he goes into the box with Marie and Helen. So Russ, Marie, Helen, they're all in wooden box, dry ice, topped up. Once a week. Frozen sardines. Now, uh, at this point, Bob Nelson gets kind of excited because Russ Stanley was quite wealthy. He was quite a wealthy man. And Nelson was under the impression that uh, Stanley was just going to leave all of his money to the Cryonic Society to keep everyone frozen in perpetuity. But yeah, he kind of wanted to be frozen, so you think maybe... He'd maybe he'd want to stay frozen. Throw in a little bit of money. It turns out, uh, no, from Bob Nelson's own claim, so I don't know about the veracity of this, uh, Stanley left nearly all of his money to his neighbour, who was a gentleman that he had a romantic relationship with, called Mr. Coco. Hell yes. Uh, Except for uh, five grand in the immediate aftermath, and then another five grand that would be paid out in three months that would go to the Cryonic Society. It's still, I mean, look. You know, it's 1960s money. Ten grand? That'll buy you, say... Um, a partially underground vault in a cemetery in Chatsworth, California. Oh. Which is exactly what he bought, yeah. incidentally. If you're in the market for such a thing. Yeah. So he he gets the vault, but at that point, he's not doing anything with it. He's keeping the three bodies, wooden box, garage. And then he gets a phone call. A woman in Detroit who has been paying to have her frozen dad stored in a facility in Arizona has run out of money to pay for the storage and the liquid nitrogen uh, and is being threatened with having the metal container her dad is in thrown out onto the street. Huh. So Nelson says, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a place that I can yeah. keep your metal capsule if you want to give it to me. We've, and then We've he, got a box. Well, so you he got a body. doesn't tell her about the box. What he tells her about um, or shows her is a series of concept drawings of a very futuristic looking underground laboratory yeah. filled with like... So what... What I initially pictured when I was thinking about, you know, cryonic tubes was like those 
Alien or 2001 style ones where it's like a glass topped tube. Yeah, 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 100%. There's a bunch of scientists checking readouts and dials. Uh, that's what he shows her. Um, yeah. But... It's good to have aspirations. Yeah. And they went in something like that. Instead, what he actually has is just a square hole in the ground yeah. in a cemetery. But um, he oh. doesn't tell her that. Oh, tomato, so, tomato. Nelson says, yeah, absolutely. I will take that capsule off you. So the capsule is an actual... Well, actual, I don't know what that means in this context. But it, it is a purpose-built cryo chamber. It is a uh, a big metal container with a vacuum layer between the outer layer of metal and the inner layer of metal. And then on the yeah. inside goes a body, which is cooled by liquid nitrogen that, you know, needs to be topped up as it sort of boils off. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so he takes that, he puts it in the cemetery, and then when it arrives, he hires a welder. He gets the welder to open that welded shut capsule uh, with a blowtorch. He takes the three bodies from the wooden container, puts them <laughs> into the metal container alongside the woman's frozen dad, and then seals it back up. And he yeah. has not told the woman whose dad it is about this in any way, shape, or form. Look, I mean, those are, those are implementation details. Yeah. They don't necessarily to need to know. Yeah, even though every single body involved in that process will have thawed out a little bit during the transfer process. Yeah. She doesn't need to know about it, so it's fine. Now, theoretically, at this point, he is sitting pretty, right? He's got uh, his nice vacuum layer container cooled with liquid nitrogen instead of dry ice. So, theoretically, he only needs to top it up every few months instead of needing to top it up weekly like he used to. Yeah. Except it turns out it's quite hot in Chatsworth. And the vacuum pump is working too hard to keep the vacuum maintained, and it keeps burning out. So, once that, once the vacuum goes, it causes a little bit of the end of the capsule to pop out because it was held in by the vacuum. Oh. And that causes everything to warm up drastically, which means the nitrogen is boiling off at a way faster rate than it was before. Yeah, and you kind of got, like, the end of the chicken when you defrost it. Yeah, that's what you've got. You've got a little, still frozen on the inside. Yeah. Little bits, those little piggies getting a little warm. A little, a little toasty. Uh, and on top of that, uh, more people keep dying. Nelson is then contacted by the parents of a seven-year-old girl who was on the verge of death. Uh, I think from cancer, but I can't quite remember. Um, and her parents and also the girl seemingly wanted to be frozen at the point of her death. So Nelson at this point has nowhere to put her, doesn't have any money. Um, but from his own claims, he's just very moved by her plight. He's become friends with this girl. They went to Disneyland or some shit. I don't know. Uh, that he goes, well, I have no way I can feasibly do this. I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm going to make so do. He takes possession of the body when the girl dies. Uh, he puts her in a wooden box lined with pure polyurethane that he tops up with dry ice in a garage, in a mortuary. <laughs> and then um, he gets another stroke of luck. So uh, a man called Stephen Mandel, who was 24 years old when he died of enteritis and adrenal failure, uh, he was the first person frozen by the Cryonic Society of New York. I don't quite know how these people managed to get in contact, but the life insurance policy that Mandel's mother had thought would pay to cover the cost of storing the body of Stephen with the Cryonic Society of New York never pays out. They dispute the claim. Uh, and his body has been sitting with the Cryonic Society for four years, 
And the Chronic Society people have been paying for it out of their own pocket. They're running out of money as well. And they're just like, look, we can't do this. You need to take this body somewhere else or we need to bury him. And uh, this woman, Stephen Mandel's mother, ends up talking to Bob Nelson, who says, yeah, absolutely, yeah, I'll sure. take your capsule. This guy's never seen a body that he didn't like. Yeah. He's never seen a capsule that he didn't like. <laughs> uh and at this point, um, sometime between the seven-year-old girl dying and getting Stephen Mandel's capsule, he has also taken possession uh, of the body of a 55-year-old woman from Des Moines, Iowa, named Mildred Harris. Uh, she also has been stored classic style, like the seven-year-old, in a wooden box lined with polyurethane topped up with dry ice in a garage. Mm-hmm. She has been there for two years at the time that he receives the body of Stephen oh Mandel. Oh, gracious. Now, Nelson had taken, so had gone to uh, Mildred Harris's home when she was about to die. And, you know, with his team of, quote, experts, uh, they had done the perfusions and everything and frozen the body because they were paid $15,000 by her two sons uh, on the proviso that he placed her in a state-of-the-art cryo chamber that he said he would buy specifically for her. Yeah, yeah, which he's definitely going to do. Definitely 100% going to do. Yeah, he was One thing we know about, old mate. Yeah. I mean, he's on the level. She'll end up in a cryo chamber. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, he was also paid another $6,000 uh, to disinter, freeze, and then store the remains of uh, their father, Mildred Harris's late husband, Gaylord Harris, mm-hmm. um, who had died. <laughs> Don't laugh. They were died a few months prior. So he never had the perfusions or anything done to him. They just figure, hey, if the technology is that good in the future, maybe they'll still be able to get him. Yeah, we'll get the we'll get the blood out at the yeah. end. Yeah. We will get the decomposing frozen remains frozen decomposed remains of this man and we'll revive him. Yeah. So obviously neither of these things happened. Uh so Nelson has the capsule that Stephen Mandel is in flown from New York which is on the East Coast, to Chatsworth, which is on the West Coast, about as almost as far a flight as you can do in yeah. the US. Now, it's easy to fly a cryogenically flo- frozen body yeah. across from one it, side of the country to the well, other. Well, it's quite interesting because it is quite Cold easy up there. if you don't tell the airline that there's a dead body in the capsule. Yeah, you just tell them you have a capsule and then hope they don't ask questions, which is exactly what it did. Yeah, hey, isn't it isn't it better if there's just a little bit of mystery around what's in the what's in the capsule? I would have asked questions if that was someone's checked baggage, personally, but I guess we're all different. Yeah. What year is this at this point? It's still the it, 60s. This is 1972. Yeah, 1972. Point. You could bring your bomb on a plane at that point. You could. You were oh, still sorry, allowed. I, I have my collection of bombs, antique and modern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... So, obviously, once he gets the tube, the tube arrives, and he puts it in the underground, semi-underground vault, and then he cuts it open. He adds the body of the seven-year-old girl and the body of Mildred Harris, and then seals it back up. Now, this capsule is also faulty, just like the last one. It also turns out that uh, the electrical hookup that he has in the cemetery does not provide enough power to support the vacuum pumps on both capsules at the same time. Barely enough to support the vacuum pumps on even yeah, one of them. Because the I don't think they're probably they're probably not equipped for this, right? The typical typical body in a cemetery uses zero power. You might no. even get some if you got some of those fancy like methane suckers there. 
Yeah, they're not they're not meant to run super fridges traditionally. Yeah. No pumps involved with the traditional body. No, few pumps in your average casket. <laughs> uh, so these things are both sort of getting way too hot constantly. Yeah. Uh, and also, on top of that, the entire flight from New York to California, they obviously weren't plugged into 240 volts or whatever the fuck Americans are on over there. Yeah. Uh, so it was just entirely without body, uh, power and his body warmed up significantly and his body warmed up significantly when it was cut open to put the other two bodies in there. So, like, all of that means that all of these bodies have sort of been partially unthawed and then refrozen. Yeah, especially to- Old Maid on the Plane, who yeah. was already not in a great state. Like, hopping in the world's longest elevator ride, uh, and then it stops at the Games Workshop level. And a guy hops in, and then someone welds the elevator closed. It's exactly throws like it that. in the cemetery. <laughs> uh, and on top of all that, um, it's believed from uh, court records that came out later that Nelson just stopped maintaining one of them entirely uh, just a few months prior to the end of 1971 and just sort of let them decompose and then froze them again. So pretty cool. Yeah. Now, during. Oh, look, I've got a bunch of failed projects it's hard it's hard how to can keep you blame up the enthusiasm man. during all of this uh one of mildred harris's sons is regularly coming to california to visit his mother and father in the vault <laughs> now at one point he affixes a plaque with mildred's name on the cryo chamber that she shares with two other bodies yeah. that this man doesn't know about <laughs> but he also affixes a plaque with his father's name on the other cryo chamber, which does not contain the remains yeah. of his father at all, and instead contains the remains of four strangers. So, luckily, he only needs two plaques. There's only two wet blankets coming in to see their dead relatives. Well, yeah, so it's just, it's the one guy, and he apparently has no qualms with how the operation looks whatsoever at this point. Uh, also, I can't find specifically what did happen to Gaylord Harris's remains, but the uh, the mortician who owned the mortuary, his notes indicate that the disinterred body was, quote, never perfused or frozen. So straight into landfill with Gaylord Harris. Okay. Now, in the meantime, while all this is happening, Nelson is also running another facility in Mount Holiness Cemetery in Butler, New Jersey, uh, which by the time of 1974, when he washed his hands of the operation, contained a single cryo chamber that held the bodies of two women, Dorothy Laban and Anne de Blasio. Now, oh my God. he just picked up and left from the New Jersey facility, leaving the care of the cryo chamber in the hands of Anne de Blasio's former husband, uh, Nick de Blasio. I'm going to uh, read to you here from the dissertation... Failed futures, broken promises, and the prospect of cybernetic immortality toward an abundant sociological history of cryonic suspension 1962 to 1979 by Grant Schofstall, uh, which is where I've gotten most of the details of this story from. Uh-huh. Here we go. The vessel was apparently modified to accommodate the needs of a bulk liquid nitrogen delivery service. Two, quote, fill pipes were added to the capsule, while the pipes expedited the filling process by virtue of their connecting the inside of the storage vessel with the outside, they also served as a heat conductor. Yeah, so they're just going to 
the vacuum's Just sort of gone now. Defeated no, the purpose no point. of yeah. that. Yeah. And I mean, pipes are probably metal, so they're probably just... Super conductive. Super conductive. Well, not super of, conductive, but quite conductive. You know what? We, yeah. We're not idiots. This had the effect of speeding up the rate of liquid nitrogen level boil-off, which in turn had the effect of producing a cap of ice over the top of the vessel, making it difficult to open for inspection. In order to do so, the ice had to be chipped away. Yeah. On one occasion... De Blasio, or a liquid nitrogen service employee, it is not clear who, took a hammer and chisel to the ice, and in doing so, inadvertently damaged the vessel's vacuum seal, causing all the liquid nitrogen to rapidly deplete. Long before the damage was recognised, Dorothy and Anne thawed and began to de decompose. There is some record of an attempt to repair the vessel, but ultimately the remains of Anne and Dorothy removed from the MVE Forever flask and conventionally buried. Don't call it that. Don't no, give it a... Don't give it that name. Th it's sort of a for a little while flask. <laughs> <laughs> for a short period flask. Oh my god. That's so grim. That yeah. is Yep. That is nasty. Uh Nelson wasn't done. So after he abandoned uh the Mount Holiness facility. What is this guy's problem? He froze two more bodies at Chatsworth uh, between 1974 and 1976. A man named Pedro Ledesma and an unnamed six-year-old boy who were stored together in the same cryo chamber. Uh, both of them were thawed by the end of April 1979, along with everyone else that was in there. Oh, my God. Uh, although it may have happened much, much earlier with the other two containers. So uh, the local press got wind of the failures and broke into the vault with one reporter describing the scene thusly. The stench near the crypt is disarming. It strips away all defences, spins the stomach into a thousand, thousand dizzying somersaults. Oh, shouldn't be doing that. Something's nope. gone wrong. Uh, several of the relatives of the formerly frozen deceased sued Nelson and the mortician for just over a million bucks. Uh, the mortician's malpractice insurance paid out his half of the fines. Uh, Nelson managed to pay out, uh, wriggle out of paying anything because of some procedural irregularities. Yeah. So he only had to pay $18,000 in legal fees and he was off completely scot-free. Man, oh man. Yeah. It, uh, just mm -hmm. the power of lying. You just, you can get so far just by, just by lying and, and in like, life. The things he's appeared to have lied about are fucking insane. From yeah. like, if you read this from a few different sources, there's a whole thing in the This American Life episode where he says that the the first time the bodies thawed, he like flew to the cities that the families were in to tell them face to face that it had happened, and they all told them that it's fine just to refreeze them. And then This American Life called up those people. They said, "No, he never came and visited. He never told us. He never even phoned us about it." Uh, He's apparently a real piece of shit. Uh, he died himself in 2018, only four years ago, and his body is currently in Clinton, Michigan, in the storage facilities of the Cryonics Institute. Yeah. He, sh he shouldn't be in there, We I should think. just unplug him. I, just... I feel like if there's a just universe, yeah, he's getting unplugged. Interestingly enough, um, I had a look. They have a patients list uh, in for the, the Cryonics Institute in Clinton, Michigan. But they only have the names of a few of them. Mostly they're just by patient numbers. And most of them are, you know, a first name and a last name. But there is someone in there who... Let me just double-check my details here. Uh, patient number 87. They were frozen on the 7th of March, 2008, with only one name. That name is Theo. 
Oh. Hmm. Sounds like an intriguing gentleman. Much to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that concludes... I, I was going to do several stories of cryonics failures and controversies because there are a couple of other ones, but it turns out this one's quite long. But, um, yeah, how's that? That was grim. Isn't that fucking insane? That I didn't like that guy. So the the first person to be frozen cryonically is still frozen, but, like, the next, like, 17 people all had problems happen and they were all all thawed out and all just buried traditionally. Yeah. Which is pretty fucking wild. Which is, like... I mean, if you're, if you're the kind of guy that wants to be frozen for all eternity, to kind of get thawed out like a, like a roast chicken and then chucked in the ground like a... Like a dead dog. Like a dead dog. <laughs> mm. You'd be pretty disappointed, except you wouldn't be because you're already dead. Yeah. So really, no yeah. one's feelings not, are getting Not hurt, much to think about. Except your family, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you're already experiencing the sweet bliss of nothingness. Yeah. Sounds very relaxing. Yeah. Well, that concludes oh. this episode of The Theophiles. Theo, thank you so much for telling me about those dirigibles. Thank you for telling me about... Some arsehole You who are loved freezing bodies. You're so welcome. Um, this is going to come out, I believe, today, which is the day before New Year's Eve. So I hope you, the listener, and your wife who's listening in the car have a happy and safe um, New Year's Eve. Take some drugs, but not too many. Yeah. Or if You don't even have to stay up to watch the fireworks. That's my message from me to you. You could be asleep by 9.30 yeah, after no having... No one's checking. Yeah. I will be checking. I'm messaging you at 11.59. I'm not you replying up? to that I message. love you. Yeah, I'm I cherish up. our friendship. <laughs> I'm asleep, buddy. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.